the amount of objects that were looted in the 19th century required the creation of museums. That's right. Rather than assuming that museums were always there and objects were collected into those museums, what I'm trying to show is that the amount of plunder unleashed this process of creation of museums all around the US, for example, all around Europe and in other places. Ariella Azoulay's new book is a punch to the gut of complacency that's still rampant in the culture and academic communities. Communities that are still dominated by voices that find it hard to understand the ramifications of their work in relation to empires and colonialism. For far too long, curators, scholars, artists, collectors, and critics, of course, have relied on a myth that they're above the fray. Perched in their privileged positions and simply presenting the facts or reflecting the world around them. Those of us paying attention have always known there's more to that. In the last few decades, academics as varied as Edward Said and Goyatri Spivak have chipped away at that fiction. And now Azule has added her voice to the continuing conversation through the lens of photography and decolonization, which she suggests should start with the European conquest of the Americas in 1492 and not with the traditional start date of photography sometime in the beginning of the 19th century. That is sure to raise some eyebrows in the field. Her work, though, has long lingered on the photograph and the conditions for their creation. She never fetishizes photos, and even in her latest book, she's chosen to draw the images rather than reproduce them as photographs. A controversial decision for sure, but one that highlights her interest in the world around images, rather than the image as the only site of inquiry. If this all sounds like heady stuff for you, I suggest you sit back and take the time to listen and unlearn a bit. Her new book, Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism, is published by Verso Books, and it builds on her past work that looked at the role of photography in the formation of the modern nation state. The book topped hyperallergic best books of 2019 list, and it has a lot to say about reparations, museums, modern art, and violence. I'm Hadag Bartanyan, the host of the Hyperallergic Podcast. I think your new book is provocative in many ways for many people who may me maybe haven't been thinking about photography as much as you have. You know, and my first exposure to your work was as a curator. I saw your exhibition that you did at Batyam Museum in Israel. And do you want to talk a little bit about who the artist was and what that exhibition was? Yeah, this was an exhibition of an artist, photographer who builds cameras and uh, uses them in particular contexts. Each camera is built for a specific context. What he's trying to do is to challenge the way that cameras were institutionalized as uh, devices that should produce legible mm -hmm. images that then will be circulated elsewhere. So uh, we were in a dialogue for, I think, almost two decades. And, uh, and his name was Haim? Dewell Lusky. The Heim Dewell Lusky. I also wrote a book about his work uh, several years ago. And I think what I was interested in his work is the way that he challenges the device. 
right. the device of the camera. And I think that what I'm trying to do in the book is to challenge not only the device, but to challenge the way that we understand the device as the center or the focus of photography. The thing that blew me away about that exhibition that we're talking about is the fact that he had devised these different kind of cameras that were both sculptural and had were playing with notions of the eye, clearly. And sometimes they seem to mimic eyeballs or other kinds of types of, you know, things we machines for viewing. And the images were fascinating in and of themselves. But there was kind of like an, a distancing that kind of happens in the different things because they feel both very immediate, but they feel kind of mediated, do you know? And it sort of, it made it more conscious. Like it was almost like you consciously saw how photography fails us by revealing the mediation, do you know, in his mm -hmm. objects. How would you characterize his work for those who may not know? Let's say that the images are less important for mm -hmm. me, the images that come out of it, even though I agree with you that they are fascinating. I am more interested in the way that uh, he builds objects mm -hmm. through which photography can be rethought. Rather than thinking, you know, through the way that the device of photography was built and established as uh, an instrument to capture the world and to translate it mm -hmm. or to write it with light or whatever history you would like to embrace in order to depict it, what we see with these instruments is the possibility to think about photography outside, for example, of the relationship between the one who holds the camera and the person who is in front of the camera. Because all of these objects are not objects that are held in the hands of someone who is mastering the situation. There are devices that are being, you know, that are um, in between people and they require a moment of exposure. But this moment of exposure doesn't master the situation because you have no idea what will be inscribed in or on the surface that is within the body of those objects. I mean, some of them almost look like soccer balls, like you should be kicking them around. And there are other, do you know, it's like even imagining how they took images is kind of amazing yeah. you know and so in this book potential history unlearning imperialism one of the most provocative things i think about the book is you decide to not look at the traditional beginning of photography which is often seen as the 1830s and and that period where the formation of this kind of photo history that's taught in schools often and you imagine it starting more like 1492 why did you decide to do that <laughs> Um, I don't know if I can speak about it with the term decision. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it is related to a decision, but let's say that uh, studying imperialism, I couldn't continue to relate to photography as something that came late. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, several years ago when I wrote The Civil Contract of Photography and later on The Civil Imagination, I tried to uh, uh, go beyond the reduction of photography to photographs. Mm -hmm. Because photographs are the outcome of the machine, of the device, and somehow they became the center of uh, the archive, the center of the discussion of art. And what I try to do is to understand photography on the one hand as an event, mm -hmm. on the other hand as a practice, and certainly not something that is reducible to the person who holds the camera, the device. So I try to understand photography as an encounter in which many people participate and to understand their re removal 
from our understanding of photography, the removal of the photographed person, for example, mm -hmm. the removal of the spectator, the concrete spectator and the hypothetic spectator that participate in my eyes in the event of photography. Because whoever participates in the event of photography has some, you know, notions or aspirations or anticipation of potential spectators that will be involved. And they are not necessarily the same uh, from the perspective of the photograph person and the photographer. And when I started to study, you know, the history of imperialism, it was related to my migration from uh, destroyed Palestine called Israel to the U.S. seven years ago. And when I landed here, I uh, understood that I really have to uh, take a crash course in the history of this place because I felt How like... How did that go? You know, I felt <laughs> like, you know, this is really a settler colonial uh, place, right. like in Par Israel. Par excellence, yeah. Par excellence, but I felt yeah. like, you know, colleagues around speak about the founding fathers. They speak about the constitution as if it was a sacred document mm -hmm. and... Uh, I knew that I had to learn more about the way that slavery shaped this place. So it was on the one hand slavery, on the other hand settler colonialism and the destruction of uh, different uh, species of life, let's say. Mm -hmm. The appropriation of indigenous land and all this. So I felt like, you know, I came here seven years ago. I thought that the Potential History book is almost done. And when I oh, came wow. here, I understood that it's not done. And rather than, you know, having Palestine as its focus, Palestine became a reiteration of imperial violence, right. rather than, you know, the exception or rather than, you know, my focus. And so, you know, starting to work uh, uh, in this context of uh, 1492, speaking about photography as a delineate practice felt completely wrong. And also speaking about photography as reduced to this, you know, encounter between an individual photographer and several photographed person also felt wrong. What I started to understand is photography on a scale of extraction. Ooh. Because yeah. once you enter, you know, museums, you enter archives and you understand how much was extracted from people all around the world, you understand that extraction was not invented with the device of photography. Extraction was there. The organization right. of the world, you know, that you call this place U.S., you call this place uh, Saint-Domingue. All these, you know, taxonomies and division of the world, the spatial and temporal division of the world, uh, it is as if photography just, you know, continued this. So rather than accepting the imperial temporality that a practice like photography as a beginning moment that is related to the device, I wanted to understand photography as having its beginning together with other extractive practices, the extraction of lands, the extraction of resources, and the extraction of free labor. And once you understand photography outside of the encounter between individuals, and you think about the extraction of what I call visual wealth, mm -hmm. you understand the amount of free labor that was extracted from the photographed persons that is accumulated in Western-type museums or in Western-type archives. 
So I forgot where we started. But I think I think we're in the right <laughs> spot where we should be. I mean, I think that's that for me is part of it is pretty mind blowing. What I also love about the book is at the beginning you do a little bit of archaeology on your own family history with mm-hmm. your father and his his roots in Algeria, and also by this sort of your middle name Aisha. Mm-hmm. Now, was that a name that was given to you, or did you claim that name? I claim that name yes. because one, uh, when my father passed away, also seven years ago, it was at the same time that I migrated to the U.S., you know, he passed away and we had all of a sudden access to his documents. Mm. And what I'm saying, we, I'm speaking about me and my siblings, and we had access to his documents, and all of a sudden I see that his mother's names, his mother's name is Aisha and not Alice, as he used to tell us. And, you know, as we didn't meet her frequently because she lived in uh, France, you know, we couldn't confront him on this ever. We couldn't ask her even because she spoke French. We didn't speak French mm-hmm. when we were children. So I realized that his mother's name is Aisha. And Aisha is not a typical Jewish name, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And immediately I decided that this will be my name. And, uh, you know, later on, when I wrote the book and several things came together, one of them is the understanding that, you know, the Kremielo, for example, in Algeria, when the Jews were given citizenship, they were actually pitted against the Arab inhabitants of Algeria. But when I'm thinking about my great-great-parents, they gave their daughter an Arab name 25 years after the Crimean law, which means that they refused to become the good citizens of the French Empire. While all those years I related, you know, all the years that my father was alive, I related to him as someone who really wanted to pass for a French guy, even though, you know, he was uh, North African, in retrospect, I even recognize his accent as a North African Arabic accent mm-hmm. uh, when he spoke French. So, yeah, Aisha is a name that I claim to myself, and it helped me to, I think, not complete, but to go farther with my withdrawal from the identity that I was given when I was born, which is I was born an Israeli, which means I was born to be the enemy of Palestinians from whom I their lands, their resources, and everything else was stolen. So understanding that I am Aisha was uh, actually going against, let's say, my ancestors, my father and my mother that embraced the Zionist project and allying with my great-great-parents that refused to be the good citizens of empire. You know, it also really impacted me when you write about your father marrying a lighter-skinned woman. You know, my father did a similar thing. I think part of that story resonates so much is because I think these are all very common. You're talking about how he was trying to pass his French. And then he arrives in Israel passing his French. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's like, so all these layers that have been hidden in this story are very much the kind of... I'm using this as an example so people kind of understand how these sort of these skins sort of like emerge as you sort of delve into these different topics, which I think is incredibly important. So now, how do you situate yourself then? Do you know, because you talk about not embracing the Israeli part, you talk about all these different aspects. And one of the things I, I find in this work and in these conversations, you know, there's this always this tendency for people like, oh, but you're implicated. You can't free yourself of that. Like, I mean, you're you're part of the system. You know, this is like sort of thinking like, oh, you're part of the system. Like, don't complain so much. You're you're benefiting as much as anyone. 
How do you respond to that kind of, I mean, it's a lazy critique in my opinion, but how do you respond to those kinds of ideas? Like how do you situate yourself in that kind of imperial dynamics? I think that there are two parts to your question. One of them is how do I situate myself? And the other one is how do I respond to this kind of, as you say, lazy critique? I think that they are not really the same question. So let me start by trying to answer the first one. Where do I situate myself? I think that for now, I can say after I finished, you know, working on this book in the last decade, I would uh, recognize myself more like a Palestinian Jew and on the one hand and like an uh, Arab Jew in the context of uh, Algeria, in the context of North Africa, and even I would say in the context of Africa. And it matters for me to ask, what does it mean that Algeria became North Africa rather than Africa? And what does it mean that I was born in Palestine and interpolated to forget mm. all these uh, components of my identity? And when I'm thinking, for example, about, you know, my identity from the side of my mother who was born in Palestine and in her understanding before she was compelled to embrace the Zionist project, in 1948, when she was 19, in her understanding, she was a Palestinian Jew. So even if it sounds like, you know, provocative to say that I'm a Palestinian Jew, I would like to relate to it not as a provocation, but rather as reconstructing different genealogies that imperialism deprived us from. So when you ask me, where do I situate myself? I situate myself where I can exercise some liberties to reject or to refuse the interpolation of imperialism to define who I am. But this doesn't relate only to, you know, geographical or cultural context. Mm -hmm. It relates also to, you know, the way that by imperial categories, I am being defined as a scholar, which means having different privileges, having different accesses to certain objects, etc. So in this domain also, I'm trying to refuse some of those uh, licenses, let's say, to do certain things that are expected from scholars. I was about to say that's such a great word, license, because part of your book talks about that, the fact that the scholarship, and I mean, anybody who's studied the history of Western intellectual history knows, you know, the infamous French expedition to Egypt mm -hmm. is probably the most stark example of what that is, and you talk about it in your book. So what does it mean to give up those privileges? We'll go back to the second part of that question shortly, but I just I, maybe I wanted this to ask is about the second that. part okay. of the question that we are not outside of the system. So I don't pretend that I am not teaching at Brown and I am enjoying uh, many of those privileges. But the question is how you are negotiating those privileges in a way to emphasize and to make present all the time, not just, you know, to say it and then to move on, to make present all the time what is wrong about using certain of those privileges. And I don't think that there is a place outside of those systems, but there are different places within those systems, and we have much more power than we believe, especially if we were many, to reject some of those interpolations that are given to us. Amen. That's <laughs> so now I want to talk a little bit about the art in the book. And when I say art, <clears throat> I use that term specifically because I expected it to be full of photographs. And the book has a number of sketches of photographs. And they're clearly derived from photographs, so that's clear. But you've chosen to draw them instead. And it looks like probably in pencil, I'm guessing, or graphite. Yeah, yeah, pencil. Yeah. So 
What was that Most about? Most of them, except one. So why did you make that decision? <clears throat> was it about taking the power away from the image itself or from the spectator and the person constructing that image and undermining that? How would you characterize it? So it's none of those options, even okay. though it can be. Mm -hmm. any of them at a certain time. And when I'm saying it's none of those options is because, first of all, it has a history. When I started to trace images, and I will come back to it in a minute, but on the other hand, there are different moments or different justification for each and every image. So this is why I cannot say yes for what you're suggesting as a general approach to why to draw rather than to mm -hmm. print photographs. So the history of that comes back to, I think, 2007 or 8. I don't remember exactly, when I visited the archive, the photographic archive of the International Red Cross Center in Geneva. And I asked to see what do they have from uh, Palestine from 47, 48, because I knew that they were there. You know, it's several images. I've already created the photographic archive of 47, 50 from Palestine to Israel at the time. So I knew that they were there, you know, with cameras, because I had some images in which they are being seen with the UN, you know, armband taking photographs. So I asked them, what do they have? And they show me only 500 digitized images. And you could think that they were there in a field trip rather than in the destruction of an entire place. So, you know, rather than putting myself in the situation that I am looking for the sensational images, I nonetheless explored what they showed me. And I selected 40 or 50 images that I wanted to show in an exhibition. And they told me that I will be allowed to show them only if I will show them only with their caption. And immediately I rejected their offer, but I didn't reject my right to show these images. So the solution that I found was to trace them, to draw them, because, you know, I had very low resolution thumbnails of these images, but I didn't want to become an artist. The idea was not to become an artist or is drawing now those images and will be appreciated for my, you know, uh, drawing skills. The idea was how to inscribe those images that I'm not allowed to show within the photographic archive. So I called them unshowable images. And why unshowable images? Because these are images that you can go to the Red Cross archive in Geneva and you can see them. Mm -hmm. You can view them if you ask for them. So they are not censored by the archive. Because I'm working against this notion that the archive is about censorship. The archive is about so many other things. So you can go and see them. So what they prohibited is that I will show them to you. So it's the act of showing to others. It's the act of taking something, depriving the archive from being the voice of those images that they are not tolerating, mm -hmm. that they are denied to me. So I call them unshowable photographs. But this was already the second category that I introduced into the photographic archive. The first one was untaken photographs of rape. When I right. read many testimonies of... Women were raped, for example, in Palestine in 48 or later on in 45, later on in my work, previously yeah, chronologically in 45 when the mass rape of German women took place. 
and I read, you know, the, about the presence of the cameras, I created this category of untaken photographs of rape. We speak about taking photographs, but what about the photographs that were not taken? So, this relates yeah. us also to what we spoke at the, at the beginning, that I'm relating to photography not as a productive practice, because cameras were there and they didn't yield the product, but nonetheless the camera was there. So I, what I try to do is to invent these archival creatures or archival entities, unshowable photographs, inaccessible photographs, untaken photographs, and to put them as placeholders in the archive in a way that destabilize or undermine the way that we conceive the archive. Absolutely. I just want to give people a little bit of context. So the, the project you're saying in 45, it's been documented that up to 2 million German women were raped right after World War II by Allied forces, predominantly Soviet, it seems. But you all also point out, uh, almost all of them were Soviet? No, yeah. no. Oh, I'm sorry. All of the allies. Oh, all of the allies. <laughs> That's right. But I think that often, but you did a great job in terms of also pointing out the statistics of others also, including American forces raping the German women and some of the context and sort of like the reflections by people just to give people a sense of context for that, for that item. One of the things also about this book that I think is going to make waves in, in the art community is the understanding of modern art as part of this project. Now, I have to say my heart, like, you know, was full after reading this partly because it's so hard to convince art people, particularly those interested in modern art, that modern art was part of an imperial project, as opposed to some thumbing its nose at authority, rather than just another form of assimilating the other and other things. Now, I've started that a little provocatively, but I'm going to also read uh, a sentence from your book. You say imperial violence is not secondary to art, but constitutive to it. Yep. <laughs> Do you want to take it from there? Yeah, sure. So, you know, let's take it slowly from mm -hmm. there. Even when we speak about, you know, objects that were looted and were channeled toward museums, even when we say that, we are already trapped in the imperial temporality as if museums existed and people just, you know, collected or looted objects and put them in those museums. But this is a completely imperial understanding of the process of extraction of art, or extraction of objects from other cultures. What happened is that, you know, imperialism destroyed cultures. Consciously, too. This isn't like a mistake. It's not you know? a mistake. <laughs> it's not, I it's, think some people make it seem like, oh, well, it just happened. You know, it, no, no, it was, no. A, it was actually a process. It's a process right. and it recurs from one place to another and it recurs over time, over 500 years, and it continues. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I'm coming from theater of operation exhibition at PS1. And, About the Gulf Wars. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, <laughs> the destruction of culture didn't end at any moment. It, we are still in it. Absolutely. In I mean, had just process. last week alone, we saw bombings in Iraq from different nations that had nothing, you know, it's yeah, like, you know, as an example. You and know. then they are rescuing the objects. So That's coming right. back That's to right. uh, this uh, problematic imperial temporality is that the amount of objects that were looted not only in the 19th century, but let's look at the 19th century. The amount of objects that were looted in the 19th century required the creation of museums. That's right. Rather than assuming that museums were always there and objects were collected into those museums, what I'm trying to show is that the amount of plunder 
unleashed this process of creation of museums all around the US, for example, all around Europe and in other places. So this is one thing that I would like to say in relation to your question about modern art. But now, when we understand that all these, you know, massive objects was looted, together with uh, different scholars who started to organize them, to make sense out of them. And what did they make sense? They made sense out of objects that were disconnected from their cultures, which means that they had, you know, samples of culture, and they started to organize it. And into these, you know, visionary, phantasmatic uh, narratives, historical narratives, there was a place created for modern art. So rather than assuming that modern art came after, you know, all these periods that we know from different narratives of history of art, we have to understand that modern art was the product of this accumulation of objects that all of a sudden started to be organized, you know, along temporal or geographical or cultural axis. And through imperial taxonomies. Yeah. You know, I attended your lecture, was it last year? I can't even remember, at Cooper Union, where you talked about Picasso specifically and Cubism and the huge hordes of African art that were in Paris at the time and how Picasso talked about discovering them, even though he literally just went to the basement of a museum, you know, this idea of discovering. So what's that connection here? Like, how do you see that as part of this continuity of the imperial project? Like, so what role were modern artists playing within that? And were they doing that willingly or unwillingly? Were they even aware of what they were doing? So let's take this word of discovering. Not only Picasso didn't discover in the same way that Columbus didn't discover the new world, mm -hmm. but myself, I'm not discovering that Picasso looted, you know, objects on, in, on so many levels. Mm -hmm. The idea is, or not the idea, the challenge of the book is how you make sense of this uh, knowledge that we all have. We all know that, you know, uh, they went to Egypt. We all know that they went to Africa and they brought objects. How do we incorporate this knowledge into the foundation of our fields of expertise? This is the challenge. Mm -hmm. So it's not about, you know, the anecdote about Picasso. It is about making it pertinent to what we understand as art. And when we analyze a little bit, you know, the habitus of the artist or the modern artist, it is based on license again, license to study everything, license not to be limited by anything, mm -hmm. license to have access to different cultures and to learn from them. So here we have to dwell for a second on, you know, some categories that are related to scholarship or to artistic creativity. It is, you know, curiosity is praised, right? Mm -hmm. Curiosity, the way that it was institutionalized in relation to art, is an imperial category. Because this curiosity means that you have a license, you have a right to be curious toward others. And, and to know what they don't want you to know. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, in another part of the book, you talk, I'm just going to read this sentence. Even though museums initiated, contributed to, and participated in expeditions, and their directors are at the forefront of the opposition to restitution, they are still not perceived as institutions that should be accountable for the violence they accelerated. Rather, museums are seen as arbiters and authoritative voices that can decide on the fate of looted objects. Why do you think that persists? Uh, 
I think that, as you quoted earlier, art is constitutive of the imperial project. Mm -hmm. So if museum will really be or substantially be decolonized, the imperial project also will be decolonized. You cannot decolonize the museum without decolonizing the land. So there is a continuity. And uh, So what do we do, Ariella? And, mu <laughs> and museums, you know, they are site of, they are considered to be site of education. They are considered to be, you know, site that, you know, you want to, <laughs> to have people go to the museum. You want uh, people to protect art, right? When we speak about war against Iran, people immediately are mobilized to protect sites, right? right. To right. protect art. Right. This is why I'm always reluctant to sign these petitions, sure. because not because I don't want to protect, but I want to protect everything, not just art. So still art as this kind of aura of something apart of the imperial project. Absolutely. I mean, I know Michael Press, one of our writers, wrote extensively about Palmyra and the fact that we don't talk about the fact that it was the European archaeologists in the 20s and 30s that took away all the homes that existed in the ruins and all the people and actually moved the population to make the ruins more pure. Do you know? And so, so the idea that somehow these ruins have come down to us untouched through the generations is also a fiction yeah. that we sort of propagate, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's through museums and other institutions. But how do we in the art community and people who love art, we obviously, you know, you curate it, you put it together, you, you think about it probably just as much as I do, I'm sure, um, in different ways. How do we do what we do without contributing to that larger project? With pushing back, but also understanding that people are at different levels, do you know? And there's some people are just, their eyes are opening to this reality. I mean, if we were to have this conversation 25 years ago, I think this would have been a whole different conversation because people had not been thinking about museums quite that way, or at least not understanding how they connect the dots into this larger imperial project. What do you think? Am I, I off? I have to disagree okay. a little bit. Why? Uh, I have to disagree about the 25 years ago. Okay. Um, and maybe as a way to respond to your question, what do we have to do? I think that rather than asking what do we have to do, we have to ask what people did in the last 500 years against these processes of looting and joining them. Mm -hmm. So this is also, you know, for me, the practicing a non-imperial temporality rather than thinking that we will invent, we will discover the new ways to resist against museums or that this conversation started only in the last decade rather than was there from the beginning, I insist that from the very moment of the first expedition of Columbus, people resisted this, let's call it museal impulse, mm -hmm. that Columbus came there and he thought that everything that is out there is for him to take. Mm -hmm. And for him to take, this is the museal impulse. And they resisted, and we know that they resisted. He even accounts for it in his uh, four letters. Right. Um, and the same with Vespucci Amerigo. I mean, wherever you read even the imperial actors, you read resistance to this museal impulse. So I don't think that we can allow ourselves to say that this conversa conversation started now. Well, I agree. I don't think it started now, but I do think it's hit a threshold, perhaps. Maybe that's a sort of being discussed in a more kind of in, in different levels. Do you know, it's like, I feel like those conversations we're having in certain circles, but they never seem to penetrate into a certain echelon. Only if you keep 
as the recognizable speakers, the people who are uh, recognized as actors in the world of art, you can say that. Absolutely. I think Great that point. When you uh, consult, you know, people, when you consult Palestinians, they will speak about 48. They will speak about even earlier, they will speak about, you know, the British, you know, not expeditions, but the British mandate that, you know, already acquired. Uh, the Rockefeller Museum. Yeah. And uh, if you will speak to indigenous people here or there, if you will speak to African-American communities, that their objects were plundered and dissociated from them. I mean, you cannot say that it started today. It's only if you keep all these people outside of the conversation and you create, you know, genealogies of artists or people who are being considered as part of the world of art that you can offer this chronology. Okay, I, I understand. But I, I do think like maybe then this is what is part of the question here is that hierarchy is or I mean, because I think it was a very strict hierarchy. And I think that hierarchy is now slowly maybe is not as strict and is not as hierarchical, perhaps. So those voices are being heard in a way that I think historically they were so easy to dismiss, whether it was through the centralized media and the idea that unless it got to a certain level, it wouldn't even be discussed. Now, you know, a, a publication like Hyperallergic can write about something and people will read about it around the world and learn about it and they don't have to go to the New York Times or one of these more official quote-unquote outlets that become the, you know, the center of the conversation. And I think that might be also what I'm sort of alluding to, but I, it, it's such a good point because, I mean, none of this is new. This is all just sort of changing. Now, how about for you as a professor in a university and as a curator in the world, how has that changed the, your relationships to the institutions? So uh, let's speak about maybe what does it mean to be a scholar? You mm -hmm. know, as a scholar, you are being expected to provide a groundbreaking work, right? A new work. And my entire book is against this newness, is against uh, the possibility that what I will do will be groundbreaking. Because what I'm trying to do is to say that, from and to take it seriously, I'm not the only one who says that, to, but to take it seriously as part of the scholarship, that whatever I'm saying, people already said that. that there, we cannot invent the anti-imperial position. So none of us can claim to be the author of anti-imperial position. We have to acknowledge that we are part of a tradition and we have to mobilize these voices to speak with us or us to speak with them rather than transforming them into our objects. So I think that as a scholar or my relationship to the institutions, for example, if, as a scholar, I am expected to go to the archive in order to provide a serious scholarship, I refuse to go to the archive. I refuse not because I'm expected, so I'm, I'm refusing. I refuse because in the cases that I'm working on, it makes more sense to go on strike against those institutions rather than to visit those institutions and have this privileged access to the material. And the two examples that I can give you, one of them is Palestine. I will no longer go to state archives as long as my companion in the book, who is a Palestinian who was expelled from Palestine in 48, cannot go there either. Oh, wow. So he is my companion rather than my objects of research. So rather than studying him, the entire challenge of the book is to create a different onto-epistemological condition under which we can speak together against 
the destruction of Palestine and the transformation of Israel into a fait accompli. So going on strike against Israel state archives makes sense for me in order to reject the scholarship or the scholarly interpolation that I will be the scholar of a person that was forced to be expelled from his uh, land and is still not allowed to go back. So if you will ask me, but he's already dead, this is not the point, right? Mm-hmm. He is still not allowed. So this is one case. In the case that I started to study when I moved to the U.S., which is the case of uh, slavery and the constitutive part of slavery in the context of the U.S., I'm interested in the question of reparations and uh, my argument for uh, going on strike against the archive in relation to reparations is that I am saying that there is not even a single document that will change our obligation to claim that reparations are due with all what we know now. So we don't need this extra scholarship in order to justify reparations. So I think that we have an obligation to go on strike against the archive rather than continue to go to the archive and work like tedious ants in order to generate more and more innovative scholarship about a question that should have no should have nothing with innovation which is reparations i'm not saying that slavery should not be studied i read everything that is being written about it and i value this literature i'm speaking only from the perspective of reparations The case for reparations was justified at the moment when people were enslaved. So we have to withdraw from this interpolation that we will bring the new knowledge to convince the world that reparations are due. Am I right to also assume a little bit it's part of the problem with the archive is who creates them and how they were formed? Is that part of the problem with the archive for you too? Or I just want to understand as sort of like the, the contours of the issue. The problem with the archive, you know, the imperial archive, is that the archive decide the archive is a verdict for life and death. Mm. This is the problem with the archive. Archive is uh, an apparatus of violence that determines that some people are being recognized as a citizens and some people are being recognized as undocumented. They do not have the documents. Other people are being recognized as slaves. Others are being recognized as refugees. etc etc so all these political categories and you know I have two hats one of them is photography the other is political theory all these political categories are becoming verdict through the archive without the archive they will not exist so I just want to read another passage to talk a little bit about what we're doing to whet people's appetite for your book I'm interested in the ways looted objects did not just happen into cultural institutions but are constitutive of Of the various scholarly, curatorial and professional procedures of which collecting is but one example, which have transformed world-destroying violence into a decent and acceptable occupation. Yep. <laughs> so what is, <laughs> do, do you want to comment on that sentence or uh, on that on that idea? Um, you know, I think people are going to have trouble with that. Why? I think because some people's identities are very much formed within this work, mm-hmm. do you know? And I think a lot of people feel like they are doing something good in the world. And a sentence like that undermines that sense for themselves. And, I, and one of the, the reasons I bring that up is obviously here at Hyperlert, we've been covering everything from like the Whitney protests to the Gulf labor protests for years. 
And one of the biggest confusions for me at first was how people didn't want to accept that an institution they worked at had serious foundational problems, even though the formation of museums is well known of how they formed, mm -hmm. do you know, and, and who was responsible and how they accumulated this loot and all these types of things, which you reiterate in your book. But they don't want to accept the fact that they're somehow complicit in this project. And I think that's why people are going to be hesitating. So the idea of collecting as being part of this larger scheme of violence is, is for some people, is going to sit in a very difficult place, you know, yeah. in their heads. I see what you're saying, but, you know, uh, the project of the book is unlearning, but it's not only the project of the book. I think that the project that we, that people engage with if they don't want to be complicit, is a project of unlearning, right? Mm -hmm. So you cannot unlearn uh, or you cannot learn about the fact that museums were originated in looting and stop there because this is you learn it and you know it and you move on. Unlearning is an unending process under the imperial condition. Unlearning means once you unlearn that museum is a benign site where you go to admire art, you cannot stop there. You have to unlearn also your habitus as a spectator. You have to unlearn also the way that you thought that objects uh, were channeled into the museum. You have to unlearn everything. It cannot stop there because imperialism, this is one of, you know, the particularity of this particular empire, violence. It is mediated with documents and documents acquired or were shaped as sites of legitimacy. Mm. And uh, I think that we have to unlearn the document. We have to unlearn documentary. We have to unlearn documentation. We have to unlearn all this, and we cannot stop by unlearning this. We have all the time to unlearn the foundations of what we thought are the foundations of knowledge. One of the photographs you talk about in your book is a pretty well-known photograph from the Charlie's Hebdo, a satirical magazine in France, of the infamous image of one of the heads at the magazine holding up an issue of the new publication in this kind of like rebellious or seemingly rebellious way. And you use that as an example of, to talk a little bit about this, the idea of the universal position of the artist mm -hmm. and what that means. That is going to be, I think, also controversial for some people. And I'll explain why. Because I think people still see the artist as this kind of cultural trickster that somehow rises above these kinds of political realities. And functions in this kind of, I don't know, maybe not neutral, but in a much less grounded space about these sort of labels, you know, and they're trying to, they're creating something new and this, you know, the myth of the originality and all these different kinds of ideas. Do you want to talk a little bit about that image and why you chose that to discuss that? You know what I'm trying to do in this chapter when I'm discussing this particular image? I'm trying to... Uh, sorry, can I just give a context? I realize some people may not know. So the image came after the terrorist attack in France where a number of the members of Charlie's Hebdo magazine were killed. And so this came after that and was unfortunately also tied into a lot of Islamophobia and different kinds of things that were going on at the time. Apologies, go ahead. Ari. Yeah. So just one, one thing to clarify. This... The Charlie Hebdo's offices were attacked before 
the massacre of or the killing of some members of the staff. And this image that you uh, refer to was taken after the first attack I see. against the... Uh, Apologies. Because yep. he's still yep. alive. He's yep. holding the magazine, right. challenging, yeah, I have an unlimited right to ridiculize the prophet. And it matters for the story that I'm trying to uh, narrate there because I'm trying to understand how come that an entire community criticized the way that the magazine depicted the prophet and they just don't care. And he's defying. I have, with the journal in his hand, he's defying and he says, I don't care. I have an unlimited right and you are not going to uh, limit this right. We live in France. We are the Republic. And what I'm trying to show through this example, first of all, I'm trying to study this gesture of holding something mm -hmm. in your hand or trying to challenge other with saying, kill me if you wish, or don't kill me. So I'm trying to understand what creates a situation of vulnerability that people can throw themselves or can come forward and say, kill me, if you mm. wish. And this is exactly not the case. When he's holding the magazine, he doesn't, he says, yeah, kill me if you wish. I'm not afraid of you. Right. Uh, but he's not afraid of them, but he has been provided with a bodyguard. And he was not afraid of them because he was the privileged citizen of his culture. It's true that he was killed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't protect you forever because we know that colonizers or enslavers are not protected. Right. So I take this uh, delicate case and nonetheless, I insist on the fact that he, when he challenged the community that criticized the way that he depicted the prophet, he acted as inheritor of uh, the French empire who can decide who has a right to say what in this country. And alongside him, what I'm trying to do is to study another case of a Palestinian who was made into a target of the Israeli army. And I'm trying to reconstruct this as the basis of a different form of making art, because he engaged the photographer in this request, take a photograph of me, I'm not afraid of the army. And I think that thinking about these two situations in comparison can teach us a lot about what make the life of a person vulnerable when you are deprived of your objects, when you are deprived of the protection of your culture, and when you are protected by your culture. Regardless of the end of the story, that the Palestinian was not killed and Charbonnier was killed. Uh, and the other case that I'm studying is a case from the 31 uh, Pende Rebellion in Congo, where it involved also the creation of a sculpture in relation to uh, uh, the challenge, the threat that the community felt in relation to the tax collector who came to the community to exploit them farther. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that Charlie's Hebdo is also, what I liked about that conversation was the fact that you sort of go against the accepted, maybe mainstream media knowledge of this or how it's often framed within that. But then what does that leave the artist who wants to aspire to the universal? <laughs> want to aspire to the universal, you know, in this world means want to aspire to forever stay an imperial actor. I don't have any sympathy for that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, I knew having you on this podcast would be amazing. So now when you're working on these topics, 
I'm wondering... Just maybe, sure. can we dwell a little Please. bit about the universal... You know, the entire idea of uh, art, history of art, modern art that came after, but we spoke about that it didn't come after, it came when they accumulated everything so they could organize things in a way that there was a place created for modern art, even though some of the plundered objects were contemporaneous mm -hmm. of modern art. So, and the museum created not only the possibility to organize objects in a, a longer temporal axis, but also to organize objects as if art was tra a transcendental category, that all of them were just tokens of this transcendental category. Right. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to show that there were many different formations of art making. Mm -hmm. Not all of them have been, you know, generated objects. Not all of them generated objects to be interpreted. Not all of them generated objects to be displayed. Right. Not all of them were generated to be displayed for everybody. This idea of the universal spectators, it's such a violent idea. I'm with uh, you. I, I'm not a big fan, but I think there's, I still, you know, I'll talk to art schools and other people, and there's still like that, that idea that still persists. And I think this is what you capture a little bit in your book is, Art is often seen as the opposite of violence, but right. it's not. It's not. It's not. So, you know, I'm assuming people push back on this idea with you because I, I mean, or do they not? I mean, have you, have you had people push back on this idea of art as very much part of the violence of empire? You know, I lectured in different places before the book came out. You know, I presented some of the chapters in different contexts. And so far, I had amazing conversations with uh, people, including art students. I think that they feel that something is wrong in the way that they are being educated. The same way that students at the university feel that there is something wrong with the way that they are being educated. There is something wrong about institutions where they are being educated. There is something wrong about, let's say, the whiteness of the institutions and the fact that the institutions are part of settler colonialism and there is a conflict between the more radical courses that they are taking uh, when they are in universities where you have more radical courses, and the context in which they are taking these courses. And I think that uh, rather than assuming that students are not interested in unlearning these cliches about what an artist is, which are actually, you know, very much cliches, cliches, but they are not only cliches, <laughs> they are imperial violence uh, formations. And let's also mention cliche comes from photography. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so let's also, I mean, just to bring it back yeah. a little bit to that. And one of the things that you talk about in the book, you talk about some of the images, particularly of African art and how they were denuded. Mm -hmm. Do you know the nails were taken off? The different sort of objects that somehow accumulated around them were very much not, were removed. In some ways, it reminded me a little bit of ancient art, how they were sort of made into white, you know, objects. And they were often even sanded or like the color was removed. And in the same way, African objects were sort of. So that also pointed out to me or reiterated maybe the fact that sometimes in art history, there is this assumption that we don't see that part. Do you know, and is it because it doesn't fit into the narratives or is it a conscious aspect of removing it from its current context fully? You know, what is the denuding? What is that about, do you think? The denuding is part of creating a strata of experts that are not the people from whom these objects were uh, expropriated. It's very mm. simple. Mm. They became experts of the objects that they recreated and they recreated these objects by placing them in their 
proper place with quotation mark along the temporal and spatial schemes. They recreated these objects by denuding them of their uh, some of their you know components. They recreated these objects by conversing them into the status of a work of art that is to be displayed, to be interpreted, etc. And they recreated these objects by making them accessible to peers in another imperial countries, rather than putting them in the context where they belong, which is the context from where they were uh, expropriated. But maybe in relation to the creation of the strata of experts, let me just say something about these objects. What I'm trying to argue in the book is that these objects that were denuded, uh, they were also documented. And how were they documented? They were documented according to a particular taxonomy. But nonetheless, they were documented. They were taken care of. They were protected. They were preserved, etc., etc. So we find ourselves today with numerous institutions where millions of objects that were taken from other people are accumulated and are preserved. Mm-hmm. And with documentation from where they were taken. On the other hand, we have millions of people trying to reach to the US or to Europe, and they are being called undocumented. Right. So uh, what I'm trying to do in the book is to think about the relationship between the undocumented people and the documented objects. Mm. So coming back to experts, we have experts today speaking about the question of restitution, as if restitution is of a documented object to give it with all the documents to another institution in uh, one of the countries in Africa. That they approve of. Yeah. That's the other thing, right? You talk about that too, the fact that often that conversation is like an approved a, a museum we like or like a museum that's appropriate. Yeah, which know? by the way will never happen. But let's say that the conversation is around this. And what I'm trying to say in the book is that these undocumented people and these documented objects are related. And if they are related, the way to think about their relationship is not to think about the uh, restitution of o- necessarily about the restitution of objects to those countries, but thinking about those objects, documented objects, as the missing, with quotation mark, documents of those people that were, through the archive, made into undocumented. So what I'm trying to offer in the book is an understanding, a different understanding of the rights of those people from former colonies to reach those, you know... Objects. Those objects and uh, the lands where they are being kept. Absolutely. Now, that actually ties in also, I think, in your bigger discussion about the role of violence in this. Because I think sometimes it's the violence is about severing those ties. Mm-hmm. Do you know, between the objects and the people, and the yep. populations. And you talk very uh, beautifully about the fact that like some of these objects are ritual objects. They're not meant to be seen or they're or they sort of function in these ways that outside of that context really makes no sense to anybody. Do you know, if, or at least we actually don't even fully know how some of these objects were used or not used and all these types of things. And of course, the names of the people associated with them are almost never recorded. Do you know? So... It would suggest to me, if this is part of an imperial project, sometimes I would assume that that recording would be an important part of the provenance of an object, particularly in a culture that was obsessed with lineage, Mm -hmm. like imperial cultures are. But was it because they were seen as not human? Were they seen as not important enough to document? Like, I'm trying to understand where that impulse came from initially, as opposed to like, you know, 
I mean, 19th century Europeans were meticulous about documenting so many things. So it must have been a conscious decision to not document all those creators and other details about particularly the African objects, I think is probably the most egregious because they, because like you said, many of them were contemporary. They weren't even ancient objects from 3000 years ago or something like that. Where does that come from, you think? From the license of imperial actors to those objects, like their license to the resources of these people, like their license to their free labor. But it was across the board. That's the part that perplexes me. Like, meaning, like, there would be maybe individuals, or maybe, like, not every imperial nation is exactly the same. All imperial nations worked along the same lines, and the same lines were the reorganization of labor on a global scale, which mm-hmm. meant that, you know, uh, people of color were to be forced into slavery or indentured work or very low-waged work, depending on the period. Everything that they had was eligible to be expropriated mm-hmm. and to become others. And I think that it's very important in this context of objects or art of objects to understand the strata of experts, to understand the way that the academia and museum workers are implicated in this expropriation. If those people who created those objects, the people among whom those objects made sense, would be recognized, their knowledge would be recognized, these experts could not come to the world could not be shaped, could not emerge. So it undermines their own authority. Yeah, and when you look, you know, in the exhibition that I uh, have now at the Barcelona, at the Pies Foundation, I have uh, an entire, you know, project around extraction of objects. And I'm looking at different images of what are those people who are called collectors of those objects. And I'm looking at the images where they, you know, situations of collecting. And when I'm cropping images, and I'm cropping many of the images, I don't show them in their entirety because I'm interested in the gesture of collecting. So you would see an object in the hands of a white collector, and you will see the presence of uh, an African guy, a Congolese guy nearby the collector. And you will see that the white collector is now studying everything that this guy knows about this object. This guy is not necessarily the creator, but he knows the meaning of these objects in his community. So what you would see is the way that people are being forced to become informants. And Mm. once they provide the knowledge that they have and the collectors are writing it down in more documents... They are being, you know, transformed into porters. And now they have to carry the boxes to the nearby port in order to be shipped to those museums. So, of course, you don't have name. And, of course, it is systematic because the entire imperial project is to make, you know, non-white bodies into the provider of services and labor, free labor to those who are becoming experts, those who are becoming the architects of the new world. And the new world is a project. We have to take it very seriously. Since 1492, through different phases, the new world order is an imperial project. And often a very corporate project, too. So for those that may not know, that was an exhibition at the Fundación Tapir in Barcelona. It was called Irada that just closed yesterday for those that may be uh, interested. So now, Ariel, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, both of us are from West Asia, Middle East, you know, and I want to talk a little bit about that because I think that's kind of one of the regions that is very much finds itself as part of the imperial project continuously for the last few hundred years. And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, I think 
the museums are full of objects from the region. Do you know? <laughs> almost all ancient, almost none contemporary and modern. I would love to get your take on that, why that is, how you see the region, how imperialism went in and sort of decided that this art would be part of the history of art and very much almost central to the early history of art, but then somehow gets sort of chopped off. And it sort of exists in this vacuum where, you know, Assyrians don't exist anymore, you know, but they're in, in every major, you know, U.S. and Western museum. But God forbid, if you ask someone what is an Assyrian, they wouldn't know, for instance, as an example. What is that about, in your opinion? Like, how does that fit into the larger, um, you know, sort of history of art and how the region has been sort of co-opted and sort of like transformed by imperialism? We spoke about destruction of cultures. This is the, the perfect example of destruction of culture. You destroy a culture by the fact that you destroy the infrastructure of producing objects. Mm -hmm. And you take what is called the best samples, which is a, a very problematic category. On the one hand, it's true. They took really the most precious objects, but I don't like the idea that they took everything uh, or that uh, these are the precious and the others are not precious enough. But let's take this well, category Well, they use their now. own value system yeah. too, right? So they took, you know, the precious objects, uh, the best samples of this culture, and they deprived people of the infrastructure to continue to produce objects. So they transformed it into a moment in the past in this kind of phantasmatic history of art that moves from one area to the other as if they are consecutive rather than existing simultaneously. So I don't think that what you're describing is typical only of this area. It is typical of different other areas. You know, I think that in the context of the US also we have this kind of uh, distortion, you know, at the end of slavery in the mid-19th century, when African-American went on general strike, to use Du Bois terminology, and freed themselves of slavery, there was no this kind of association between them and the objects that were looted from their cultures in museums, right? Those mm -hmm. objects were related in the uh, imaginary of the art world to other people from Africa, right. not to the people who are here, That's right. or deprived of access to those objects or, you know, uh, shaped the identity of the U.S. as an identity of a land with many museums. So I think that this kind of making different cultures into past cultures was one of the tools of imperialism to subordinate people and to put them in their right place with quotation mark in this kind of uh, large-scale or world-scale organization of labor. So you transform these people into laborers and not recognize them as people being capable of creating worlds. Creating worlds, not only creating art. Right. But I guess part of what I'm trying to get at is there is this very clear fixation on that early history, you know, in the Middle East, the so-called Middle East. I mean, most of the biggest expeditions in that period were done there. Mm -hmm. Do you know whether they're in Babylonia? Again, we're using these terms like as if they don't actually ex still exist, right? Yeah. You know, as real places. But that seemed to be Think a about foundation. all the scholars. Yeah. Who build themselves out of, you know, taking these cultures and making the people among whom these cultures lived, making right. them... Inexistent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you all you have so to do. So we are is, coming back to the question of experts. And I mean, all you have to do is go to any major Western museum and go into their quote-unquote Near East department 
and it's almost all white Europeans. Again, it's like it gets reproduced even in 2020 that we are now. You know, it's like, I guess I'm also interested because of your interest in writing so much about Palestine and Israel. Like, I feel like having visited both places, which are the same place, the same but both places, place, but, you know, it's like, I think, but I do think psychologically they're different places very much, or at least it feels that way from someone who's only visited and didn't grow up there. Um, that seems to be kind of such a great uh, encapsulation of the bigger issues. Like there, even like the Israel Museum in Jerusalem was built on top of an Arab village. Yeah. And that was something that was even celebrated in posters up until the 60s and 70s. You know, this idea of like sort of having, and even the way it's sort of built like an Arab village in these little like pavilion-like ways. It's very much a part of it. And then you go someplace like Hebron, Al-Khalil, and then you see the fact that the archaeological division of Israel has taken all many of the highest hills as somehow archaeological sites, even though they're also defense strategic do you know, and I use that as an example because it's probably the most stark example I've seen of how arts and the arts and institutions are used as a bigger part of that conversation. Yeah. What insight do you have? In so, you know, I made a film last year uh, that is part of the exhibition called Undocumented, Undoing Imperial Plunder. And it's a film that is a critical response, I would say, to... The film Statue Also Die by Alain René and Chris Marker. Mm -hmm. They did a film in black and white at the end of the 40s. They filmed only objects, and there is a very neutral male uh, uh, voiceover on the film. And, uh, you know, I was shaped by this film because, you know, Alain René, Chris Marker, we were told that these are the people that we have to look at. Mm -hmm. And I loved it, but I also hated it. And it took me years to understand why I hated it, why I loved it, etc. And the film that I did, I also, following them, uh, the film consists only of objects. I filmed mm -hmm. in several museums, at Quai and Musée de l'Homme in Paris, Pergamon Museum, where, by the way, you have a huge New Eastern uh, department. No department, wing or whatever you call and it. And giant buildings, I mean. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in Barcelona, in different places I filmed. And I remember when I went to the Quai Branlet, there are different maps. And, of course, Palestine doesn't exist, as if there were no objects in Palestine. But you have, you know, the, the entire map. You ask, where is Palestine? And on the other hand, in another map, you find the name of Israel. But you cannot have objects from Israel in Musée de Quai which is Museum of Primitive Arts, right? Because right. Israel is part of the imperial powers. So I think that coming back to your question, I think that this is really encapsulates this uh, paradox that how you transform or which culture you're allowed to transform into primitive arts or into primitive cultures that you collect them as types of uh, ancient art and which other countries are being those who are allowed to collect those cultures. So you have the presence and absence of Israel and Palestine at Kebonle, and this is very symptomatic of, the, of what you describe. That's a great example. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I mean, this we could go on forever, but <laughs> I mean, there are so many different aspects of your book that I think, I mean, it's a deep dive, do you know? Um, you know, in many ways, if it's all right, I want to read one more little piece. Sure. False stories about museums as vehicles of the democratization of art obscure their creation as instruments of violence. Modern spaces in which others' material cultures are showcased 
and stories about the backwardness of those cultures are presented as fact. This alleged facticity was made possible since the objects were detached from their origins, held in foreign hands, and removed from those who could counter the meanings they were assigned with imperial taxonomies. The spaces for displaying art had to assure the legibility of narratives of progress and appear as embodiments of their highest phase. Hence, the famous white cube is not a neutral space for the display of art, but rather a setting designed to seem like the peak of progress and therefore able to provide a neutral account of what is. <laughs> Indeed, I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think that, you know, you asked me earlier, just before you read this, if there is something else that I want to add. And I think that this is really an invitation for me to say something to end maybe our conversation, is that my expectation with the book is that people will work with it and that people will continue to unlearn with the book. Because I think that we have uh, a common project, which is unlearning together. So what I'm trying to do in the book is unlearning with many other people who are in the process of unlearning. And I think that in order for this unlearning to be transformative, not only on a personal basis, but on a, a world-sharing basis, I think that we have to commit ourselves to substantial unlearning because imperialism is not going to disappear without us unlearning our roles, our scripted roles as the operators of imperialism. We'll stop right there. That was a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Ariel Azoulay, for your new book, Potential History, as well as all the insight you've provided in photography and so many of these other uh, subjects that you tackle so beautifully. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me here. A special thanks to Dried Spider for the music to this week's episode. You can visit driedspider.bandcamp.com for more information. And we're going to end this podcast with a minute-long clip of the author reading a passage of her book. I'm Harag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Not all forms of relationship should be mediated by the archive. Not all documents and works of arts were made to be collected, classified, stored, shown, or studied. These procedures can be advantageous and illuminating in some contexts, but invasive and harmful in others. The prioritization of the documents and artworks along with the transformation of the modes of handling them into neutral procedures, erase not only the concrete violence exercised here or there when particular archives were constituted, but also the entire context of imperial violence. Move everywhere.